amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. sixth episode of American History 2 and since I didn't tell you in the last episode my name is Mark McClay and today we're going to be spreading some extra Christmas cheer on this bonus episode of American History 2. This time around and I should actually at this point I'm going to break the fourth wall if that's okay with you Malcolm and I'm going to admit that we're recording this straight after we did the one on the Gilded Age uh, hence why if you can still uh, hear, hear the nasally Glaswegian again I apologize. So since this is a kind of bonus episode, I should say I'm joined by our resident, our expert and co-host, Dr. Malcolm Craig. I'm, I'm not entirely sure about being positioned as the expert in all these discussions. Well, in this episode, you're most definitely well, the expert. Well, maybe, perhaps. We're going to completely break this kind of sequential order, the chronological way we've been doing the podcast for this bonus one, and we're going to jump forward into the mid-20th century. We're going to return back to the way we've been doing things, um, the other side of New Year. Um, and we're going to look at certain aspects of the atomic age. Yeah, I mean, I'm afraid that this particular episode kind of panders to my own particular research interests and also reflects some of the teaching I've been doing uh, recently uh, here at the University of Edinburgh. I've just finished teaching uh, a course called the Nuclear Cold War, uh, which has been great. I had a fantastic group of students and been really engaging kind of trip through uh, the Cold War and nuclear issues from Hiroshima and Nagasaki all the way up to the end of the Cold War with the fall of the Berlin Wall. So this is kind of drawing upon that teaching I've been doing recently. Yeah, I mean, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to this. I mean, I'm kind of going to get a crash course on what, on what, on what they got. I mean, judging by the teaching nom- teaching award nominations, I can only imagine it was an enjoyable course. Uh, so when we're discussing this, you said that you were keen to do an episode looking at fallout. Uh, let's start simply because my first thought was what do you mean by fallout? Fallout is essentially the the material, the radioactive dust and pulverised rock and earth and sand and all the stuff that's thrown up into the atmosphere by a nuclear explosion. And it's thrown up into the atmosphere and then rains back down on people. This is radioactive material, dust essentially. It falls out of the sky. Essentially, that's what it is. So it's the it's the highly radioactive surface matter, vaporized water, all the bits and pieces that are kind of like thrown up by a nuclear explosion, 
that gradually fall back down to earth, contaminating the entire area with radioactivity. Wow. Uh, that, 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 that sounds... Um, yeah, I don't really even have a word for that. Uh, so perhaps it would be wise... I mean, because I'm going to be honest here, I decided on this one there's no part, point in me trying to match your intellect and I would maybe be good to be the kind of the dumb person to you, the expert, and, and, and how I ask questions as you say things. Oh my God, there's no hope for us. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be great if you could give a kind of two-minute overview of the early days of the atomic age. I mean, it's not something... I think that everybody's that familiar with, I mean, which is quite surprising when you think how important the atomic bomb is. Um, so how did the atomic bomb come about? Uh, I mean, what about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And does the atomic bomb contribute to the onset of the Cold War in any way? Okay, so I'll address the first point first. Uh, the atomic bomb comes about because of developments in science uh, in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, you could take it back a bit further, but essentially when Einstein you know, comes up with his his famous equation about E equals MC squared and does all the work surrounding that. Uh, there are various scientific ideas that come off that, theories that come from it, looking at the relationship between matter and energy and all that kind of thing. And from that, there's a whole lot of work by different scientists in different part of the world, parts of the world, uh, a lot of them concentrated in Europe, uh, who eventually come to realise that it is possible to create a nuclear fission, the splitting of the atom uh, to release energy. Uh, and one of the things that come out of this is potentially this could be used to create a weapon. Uh, now, how does the atomic bomb come about? Well, there's all these scientific uh, developments. And when World War II is kind of kicking off and that's all starting, there's a fear that Nazi Germany will develop a weapon based on these ideas of atomic fission and the splitting of the atom. And there is essentially a race to stop that happening, to stop Nazi Germany getting to a new atom weapon first. Because many of the many prominent scientists, like Werner Heisenberg, remain in Germany. Many prominent scientists, because they are Jewish, for very obvious and understandable reasons, flee Nazi Germany and end up, uh, many of them in Britain, uh, many of them in America, at this point, I was just wondering, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, most people know the story that the US is going to get the bomb first. Does Germany, uh, Nazi Germany, ever actually get, uh, does, it, does it ever develop the science fast enough to get a nuclear? They have the brains to do it. Heisenberg is the key figure here. And there's always been a debate over how close the Germans got to developing an atom bomb. I think the answer is not very close. There's a debate around how much Heisenberg did to inhibit the development of an atomic bomb in Germany. But this is a very, very contested area. He has a famous meeting with Niels Bohr, another great scientist of the age, in Copenhagen. This is dramatised in Michael Frayn's play, uh, the same Copenhagen. And it's questionable what happened there. This has been Frayn dramatised this, and that's become almost kind of like what people think of the story. But no one knows how much Heisenberg did to inhibit German development of the bomb. Certainly they never purposely came... Purposely inhibit or... Purposely, in, purposely inhibit the bomb. Uh, no one knows quite how close they had a research reactor uh, located in something called the Virus House. They called that to make people think it was a biological weapons facility to keep them away. We also have the incident in World War II, the Heroes of Telemark, the famous story where Norwegian 
resistance fighters destroy the heavy water production facilities at the Norsk Hydro uh, plant, thereby inhibiting German access to these vital components of the atomic bomb. Probably not very close. They didn't get very close to the atom bomb. And actually the first people to really, really pursue the atom bomb to any significant extent is in Britain. And it's a program called Tube Alloys, which is just a code name uh, for it. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, expatriate German, uh, Hungarian, Austrian scientists, as well as British scientists, uh, working in Britain. But Britain does not have the industrial capability or the money in a time of war to produce an atom bomb. They know the basics. The people have got an idea it can be done now. Uh, Albert Einstein famously signs a letter to President Roosevelt saying this new weapon can be developed, the Germans might develop it, we better develop it. So essentially the British Tube Alloys programme, everything's shifted over to the United States and that provides us a small core of what becomes the Manhattan Project, the project to develop an atomic okay, bomb. Okay, so tell me a bit about the, the Manhattan Project then. It's the biggest weapons development programme in history up until that point. In 1940 dollars, 1940s dollars, $2 billion dollars, vast amount of money, a gigantic infrastructure, a huge number of people involved in this project to make a workable atom bomb. And it is successful through various trials and tribulations led by famous figures like Brigadier General Leslie Groves, who's the administrative head of the programme, the man who also built the Pentagon. One of the reasons he was selected to be head of the Manhattan Project is he had such a success in overseeing the construction of the, the largest office building in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's not a scientist. The One of the key scientific heads is Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah, I, I can remember coming, I mean, I've seen a documentary on Oppenheimer, one of the PBS American Experience, but I mean, Oppenheimer's not, he's an interesting figure. I mean, his politics before are then used against them later. I mean, talk a wee bit about Robert Oppenheimer and how the US treats him. I mean, like, what's it, how important is he and then how is he then treated? Oh, I mean, he's hugely important as uh, as one of the, key brains behind the atom bomb. I mean, the, the man's a, he's a genius. He's a, a, a brilliant scientist. But there are also many, many other brilliant scientists working on the Manhattan Project. You have guys like you know, uh, Edward Teller, expatriate Hungarian, uh, Leo Zillard. All these people. It's a, it's a massive collective programme. It's not one person isn't the father of the bomb. Oppenheimer is seen as the father of the bomb, but it's a collective project. But later on, because of his political associations in the 1930s, where he associated with communist mm. organisations, socialist organisations, all that kind of thing, uh, he was never a communist, but he just, you know, he had a wide range of friends, uh, different politics and everything. This comes back to haunt him uh, when he gets his security clearance taken away in 1954, as far as I remember, with these hearings about the loyalty of Robert Oppenheimer. The height of the Red Scare. The height of the Red Scare. And Oppenheimer is cut out of the system. He also protested against the building of the hydrogen bomb, which we're going to come to in a moment. Okay. Uh, but essentially, Oppenheimer is cut out of the American nuclear system at this point. And one of the key people who stabs him in the back, essentially, is Edward Teller, one of the other people in the, the Manhattan Project. Okay, brilliant. So, I mean, I think you've, you, you've kind of covered question one there. I mean, like, so, so tell me a bit about the, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, like, there's, I remember, there's one of those popular revisit, re, re, revisiting of like American history. They just did a TV programme with um, the famous film director, I forget his name now, did the Nixon and Kennedy films. Uh, 
the Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone, thank you. Um, and you know he revisited history and you know claimed that you know the they, they dropped the bomb on they dropped the nuclear bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki for you know kind of nefarious purposes rather than to stop stop uh, Americans and Japanese people losing their life in what would have been a bloody struggle. Um, I mean, I think that. And, and people sort of debate why that was done. I mean, where do you stand in terms of the research? This is an in- intense debate in historiography that's still going on. Uh, initially, the, the kind of more orthodox school saw the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as an attempt to save American lives. This was the post facto justification. Rather than invade Japan and see another 500,000 American deaths, we'll end the war using these weapons. And that's the saving American lives argument was popularised, particularly by Harry Truman and his Secretary of War, Henry Who's Stinson. president at this time. Yeah. President Harry so Truman. Truman is the one who essentially has to make the final decision to bomb the buck Hiroshima stops bags. The buck stops with him. Uh, so that was the initial kind of thing. Then you had, in the mid-1960s, uh, you have Gard Alperovitz, who puts forward the atomic diplomacy thesis. It, well, actually, it was nothing to do with saving American lives. It was all about intimidating the Soviet Union and trying to use the atom bomb as a diplomatic tool to, in this emerging, what was going to become the Cold War, to try and influence the Soviet Union. But as historiography has moved on, and I try tend to buy into a more nuanced interpretation of it, that it was a whole complex of stuff. There is the saving lives argument, which influenced people in certain ways. There is the atomic diplomacy argument, which influenced people in certain ways. There's the inevitability argument. They had spent $2 billion. It was the biggest arms project in the world ever. They could not let this fail. You don't just invent this thing and put it away. Harry Truman, unsure of himself, not a foreign policy president. Yeah, succeeding Franklin Roosevelt, who's died in office. Succeeds, at that point, the greatest president of the 20th century. A giant figure on the world stage. Remains probably the greatest president of the 20th century. Many would, I mean, many would agree We could have the argument. Yeah. yeah, that's for another but podcast. Truman's desperately unsure of himself uh, when he comes to the presidency, especially in foreign policy. He's got no experience of it. His first press conference, he goes to the assembled journalists, you know, and I par- paraphrase badly here, but essentially he goes, you know, if you're, if you're going to, you know, you know, pray for anyone, boys, pray for me now. Because he he's he's very nervous about assuming the presidency. He's succeeding the great man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's a whole complex of stuff that influences the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. I would subscribe to the thesis put forward by Campbell Craig and Sergei Radchenko uh, in their book that was brought out a few years ago about atomic uh, the atomic bomb and the origins of the Cold War, and they refer to. Uh, Hiroshima is the last bomb of World War Two, and Nagasaki is the first bomb of the Cold War. Okay. In that the two bombings happen for different reasons, and the calculus involved in these two things, separated by only three days, okay. are slightly different. Okay, so I've never heard this argument, so parse it out for me. So, the argu- essentially, the Hiroshima bombing takes place, there's the saving American lives argument, we're just going to use this thing because we don't want to have to have a ground invasion in Japan. But in the intervening three days, the Soviet Union is coming into the war. They're making aggressive demands on Manchuria, on the northern Japanese islands, all that kind of thing. So atomic diplomacy, perhaps, comes into the decision to bomb Nagasaki, because the Nagasaki bombing is brought forward. Uh, So it was meant to happen on the 11th, as far as I remember. 
but they actually make it on the 9th because the Soviet Union has said, we are now coming into the war. So it's a very complex situation, but even then, it's still too simplistic to say that Hiroshima is the saving lives argument, Nagasaki is the atomic diplomacy argument. It's far more complex than that, and we could have hours and hours of podcasts purely looking at this issue, because there is a vast and incredibly complicated historiography. Well, there you go, you have your spin-off series (laughs) created there, so... Uh, so, so by nineteen forty nine, then going forward a few years, the I mean the Soviet Union has now developed the atom bomb. Uh, you know the Cold War is, is as you know is well underway by this point. You know mm-hmm. I mean I'm going to assume that Truman and his advisors weren't particularly happy about the fact that the Soviets had developed this bomb. I mean how did how did they respond? Uh, well, there's a lot of recrimination. Essentially, well, one one result of it is recrimination. Uh, there's the you know the argument that the the Soviets only got the bomb because of atom spies. Uh, that these atom spies within the Manhattan Project took the atomic secrets and handed them over to the Soviets, and the Soviets developed the bomb because of that. Now it's true the Manhattan Project was riddled with Soviet spies. Uh, so it's a type of is that that type of attitude that eventually will bring down Robert Oppenheimer, even though he. Was you know not one of those spies. It feeds yeah, into know, that to a certain that, extent. That of, yeah, that type of memory. But actually, the Soviets were already on the road to developing the atomic bomb. The the spies, the information the spies gave reduced the amount of time they needed to develop the bomb. But they would have developed the bomb anyway. This the atomic secret was not a secret. This what the spies' real contribution to the Soviet atomic bomb project was. They didn't need to work out how much uranium or plutonium they needed to make a criticality event to actually you know, allow the bomb to be set off. That's known as tickling the dragon's tail. Very, very dangerous. It caused the death of several scientists uh, by accidental criticality accidents during the Manhattan Project. So uh, it reduces the time uh, required to work these things out and thereby speeds up the project. But they were going to develop the bomb anyway. So there's a bit of recrimination about all of this. Oh, look, the Soviets, you know, in the atmosphere of the emerging Red Scare, oh, look, the Soviets have developed the bomb. The same idea of who lost China. Who lost China. Well, (laughs) it happens that roughly within a month, you have the communists win the Chinese Civil War, the Soviets develop an atom bomb. It looks as if America's riddled with traitors and spies and all that kind of thing. So, you know, this is in the emerging atmosphere of this Red Scare that... The next year, Joe McCarthy famously taps into and bandwagoneers his career on. But in terms of the nuclear arsenal, the one thing that this leads to is it gives an increasing drive to what's known as the super, the super bomb or the hydrogen bomb, thermonuclear bomb. Doesn't sound very super. It, <laughs> compared to the atom bomb, it is pretty super. Uh, and it's this man, Edward Teller, again, uh, who really, he's the booster behind this kind of thing. He says, well, we've got to develop uh, the the super bomb uh, because, you know, having ordinary uh, atom bombs isn't good enough anymore. We need to beat the beat the Soviets. The atom bomb's a firecracker next to the super, so we're going to have to develop the super. Right. And Truman takes the decision, we are going to have this thing. So what is the basic difference between an atomic bomb and a hydrogen bomb? I mean, if you look at pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, an atomic bomb already looks spectacularly horrible. So how, how do you get more spectacularly horrible than an atomic bomb? It's the difference between a... It's the difference between a child's pop gun and 
a 12 gauge shotgun. There is, there is no comparison. You're blowing between, my mind now. There is no comparison between the two of them. So an atom bomb takes fissile material, essentially squeezes it together till it reaches criticality and it undergoes fission. Splitting the atom. Boom. Fission. Fission. Not, not fishing. No. Fission. <laughs> creates a fission. A hydrogen bomb is completely different. There are absolute limits to how powerful you can make an atom bomb. There's a, there's a finite limit of how powerful an explosion you can make. The hydrogen bomb, the super, the thermonuclear bomb, whatever you want to call it, is limitless. There is no limit to the explosive power of a hydrogen bomb. And the way you create a hydrogen bomb is essentially, and this is the, this is the simple explanation of it, you have a, a casing. At one end of it, you have an atom bomb. Of the you know, kind of, mm -hmm. you know, dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that kind of thing. Okay, You set that off. And that creates a massive pulse of X-rays. Now, this is all happening in nanoseconds, tiny, tiny fractions of time. Before this entire thing disintegrates, there's this pulse of X-rays, and that travels down the casing and hits, essentially, a, a barrel made out of fissile material, like uranium. And in the barrel is the, the fusion material, uh, which can either be some kind of uh, wet fusion material, like deuterium, something like that, which isn't really used because it requires too much of it and requires vast cryogenic support, or something like lithium. So you have this barrel of fissile material, there's lithium inside it, and in the core of it, there's another core of fissile material. Okay, And what this pulse of X-rays does, it causes the, the barrel of fissile material to create a nuclear explosion going inward. The core of fissile material in between the barrel and the lithium creates another nuclear explosion going outwards, and this compresses the lily, the fusion material, compresses the, the material. This is all happening in nanoseconds, tiny, tiny fractions of a mm -hmm. second. And this compresses this material, it undergoes fusion, which is what happens in the sun. Okay. So before this all disintegrates and explodes, you have this fusing of this material, and, and it's the basic power of the universe. It's, it's a sun. You're creating a small sun. And that's what happens with a hydrogen bomb. And the only limit to it is the amount of fusionable material that you can uh, stuff in. You can essentially make a hydrogen bomb as big as you want. It's called a hydrogen bomb. Could, could you, could, right, okay, so on that principle, could you build a hydrogen bomb that would explode the entire world? Technically, yes. It would be vast, but mm. you could definitely build it. They're called a hydrogen bomb initially because they use um, deuterium, heavy hydrogen, as the material for the to create fusion. Um, okay. But that's useless as an actual weapon. Uh, it's stuff like uh, lithium that they use. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm both terrified and wonderfully impressed by your ability to deliver a scientific lecture in the middle of a history podcast. Um, you're clearly wasted in our artsy-fartsy subject. <laughs> um, but... Um, I mean, what do the what do the public know about the atom bomb and the hydrogen bomb at this point? I mean, are people around the world aware of what these weapons can do? I mean, as far I mean, if I remember correctly, you know, all you have to do is duck and cover. Yeah, duck and cover the famous American uh, civil defense film. To be honest, public awareness of the the realities of nuclear warfare are somewhat limited. There's a lot of stuff in popular culture about you know, kind of. Uh, Films like uh, The World of Flesh and the Devil uh, and that kind of thing, which are kind of post-atomic survival films and all that kind of thing. But really public knowledge of what actually 
could happen in a nuclear war is very, very limited. In the immediate aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there are emerging anti-atomic movements. In particular, a lot of the scientists who work on the Manhattan Project create the Federation of American Scientists, they create the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, uh, a kind of magazine which is still around today, uh, giving information about nuclear and environmental issues. I think they needed a issues. better name. Like maybe just simply Fallout would have been good. Like, well, you know, it sold Xbox people games. didn't know about Fallout <laughs> at this point. Uh, so there is this initial burst of public awareness, but certainly in America and the United Kingdom, people become acquiescent to the idea. In the emerging Cold War, the atom bomb is needed. Mm-hmm. to face down the Soviet Union. And would, so, there be, would there be right in thinking... Actually, sorry, finish your thoughts. So, I mean, so there's, there's really very little genuine public awareness. There is awareness, but there's little genuine awareness or protest against it. I mean, would I be right in thinking that the government aren't exactly helping aid the public's knowledge of what might happen in the event of a of an atomic no, hydrogen strike? No, I mean, duck and cover is a perfect example of it. School children hide under your desk in the event of an atomic strike. Yes, and did, if I remember correctly, I'm sure John F. Kennedy like campaigned like he tried to sit people to buy more fallout shelters or something like that. That, could, that fallout shelters yeah. come later after what I'm going to talk about in a moment. Yeah, cool. So let's let's like kind of nudge you along to one of the examples that I know that I, I've seen you give a really fascinating lecture on a few years ago, uh, which was Castle Bravo. Mm. And now this this ha- well, I may as well let you tell us. <laughs> so tell us what happens at Castle Bravo. So I need to go back about a year before Castle Bravo to start. November 1952, there's an American test called Ivy Mike, and it's one of the shots, an atomic test is generally known as a shot, one of the shots of the Operation Ivy series of tests out in the Pacific. And Ivy Mike is important because it's the first test of a hydrogen bomb. It's massive. I mean, the thing is a building-sized device. It's huge. It's the size of a three- or four-story house requires a huge amount of cryogenic plant to keep the heavy hydrogen, the deuterium, cold enough. It needs to be kept near absolute zero. But it successfully proves that the hydrogen bomb can work. So Ivy Mike goes off in November 1952. By Tell our listeners in, like, they might be wondering where they've managed to drop this uh, hydrogen bomb that's the side of a house, and you've just, you've told us what hydrogen bombs do. Like, where are they doing this? I mean, have, have, they, have they scoured the area to search that there's no life forms well, anywhere near? Well, they don't drop this. Most of these tests are, or a lot of these tests are static. Okay. It's on an atoll uh, in the Pacific. So you get what's known as the Pacific Testing Grounds. Okay. Where the, what's an atoll? An atoll, a little coral island. Okay. A uh, little archipelago of coral islands. And they, uh, the, the French end up using uh, the Pacific for nuclear tests. British use the Pacific for nuclear tests. Pacific must feel very flattered by this. Yes, the, the, What's wrong with the, Atlantic? The, 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 people, the people of the Marshall Islands are obviously delighted to have hydrogen yeah. bombs going off on their, on their doorstep. So Ivy Mike proves that the system can work. Uh, coincidentally, a month before Ivy Mike, Britain tests its first atom bomb. So Britain has become an atomic power. But then Ivy Mike goes off and proves that atom bombs are now yesterday's game. Yeah. And you now have to have a hydrogen bomb if you want to compete. You're bringing a water gun to to a gunfight. Yeah, yeah. so uh, fast forward to March 1954, there is what's known as the Castle series of tests. Now this is them testing weaponised hydrogen bombs. These aren't big house-sized devices that need cryogenic support to make them work. These are the ones using lithium. These are droppable weaponised hydrogen bombs that you can drop from a bomber. So Castle Bravo 
is the first test in the Castle series. So it's March 1954. They estimate that it's going to be something like a 5 to 6 megaton explosion. That's equivalent to 5 to 6 million tonnes of TNT. Okay, what's the, what's the radius expected to be for how big an area that's going to affect? Uh, it's an area, I mean, just the blast and fireball is an area kilometres across. Okay, so like... The, well, here's, here's can, an example. Give us an example of what, it's, what, kind of, what the area is like. Okay. Is it the size uh, of a city, the size of a you can, this, small this, country? If you dropped... There's a brilliant website everyone should look, look at called NukeMap uh, by a scholar called Alex Wellerstein. Uh, and you can go in there and you can pick anywhere in the world and you can pick any yield of atomic weapon or nuclear weapon and you can drop it on that place and you can also calculate the number of casualties and it draws down like demographic databases and all that and you can tell you the casualties Uh, so I detonated Castle Bravo over London and I think from my memory 5.6 million people die okay so almost the entire population. So a huge the chunk of the population thoughts. of London. And it makes a vast area of southern England uninhabitable. Okay, just from the fallout. Now, okay. the point with Castle Bravo is one of the reasons it does this is they estimate it at 5 to 6 megatons. Someone gets the calculations wrong. This is all to do with the lithium that is the fusion product. It actually ends up being 15 megatons, which is a big explosion. Very big explosion. Three times the size of what they actually expected it to be. Mm-hmm. So so Castle Bravo goes off. It's one of the biggest ever radiological disaster. In terms of casualties, Chernobyl in 1986 is bigger. But in terms of the scale, Castle Bravo is the world's biggest radiological yeah, disaster. You're probably one of the small group of people in the world percentage that know what it is. Mm. Castle Bravo is quite famous, actually. It's one of it's one of the most famous nuclear tests. I think if you went up to a hundred people in the street and asked them, you'd be lucky if you got one. You know, like when those reporters go out and ask people like basic questions that they don't know. I my students from my course will know. Uh, Castle Bravo was a very popular topic. <laughs> um, so I mean, so surely like Castle Castle Bravo must have some sort of huge short term problem at least for the United States. I mean, like Japanese American relations not quite badly affected by this. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a in in the area when the bomb goes off. There's a Japanese tuna trawler called the the Daigo Fukumaru, the the fifth lucky dragon, and they're sailing around fishing for tuna, and as they're sailing around, this white ash falls on the boat and it's this white powdery ash and they get sick and they start getting sicker and they go back to their home port and one of them dies this is fallout this is pulverized sand and coral that's been sucked up by the the blast of castle bravo it's been you know bombarded with radiation it's heavily heavily radioactive all sorts of radioactive materials from the blast and it rains down on these Japanese trawler fishermen. It rains down on people of the Marshall Islands who are not attended to for three days. The US territories the Marshall Islands. Marshall Islands, yeah. yeah. But they're not attended to by, by the US. But the, the issue of the, the fifth lucky dragon creates a problem for the relationship between Japan and the United States because Japan obviously still looks back at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and now its people are being affected by radiation again and the one thing that Castle Bravo does more than any other event it brings fallout into the popular lexicon prior to that in the public domain 
fallout, this rain of radioactive material, isn't really talked about. It's not really a point of discussion. After Castle Bravo, fallout becomes a major point of discussion in regard to nuclear testing and nuclear weapons. So it has at least one positive effect then. I mean, if I understand it correctly, you know, at this time, I mean, actually, you, you've, you've, you've mentioned that, you know, Britain has the atom bomb, but it doesn't have the hydrogen bomb. But, I mean, how do the British and, you know, America's other important allies at this time, you know, react to all this? I mean, I can't imagine that if Charles de Gaulle is kicking around just now, he's particularly happy. You know, he generally wasn't particularly happy about anything, particularly in regards to America. But, well, I mean, the, the one kind of... Uh... The one kind of thing you know, I really know about is the is the British reaction to it, and it's kind of I mean you know remember Britain is an atomic power, and it's it makes the decision in the summer of nineteen fifty four, so after Castle Bravo to go for the hydrogen bomb, but fallout is sleeping seeping into the popular lexicon. So the Churchill government uh, goes to one of the, a civil servant called William Strath, and says, Mister Strath, I want you to get a, a blue ribbon committee of experts together. And what's going to be the effects of fallout on the United Kingdom? You know, if bombs go off, how's fallout going to affect Britain? Uh, so Strath goes away and he comes up with his report, uh, generally known for short as the Strath Report, and he presents it back to the British government in March of 19, 1955, so a year after Castle Bravo. Okay, And what Strath hands to the government? The government was expecting uh, an examination of what the effects of fallout on Britain are going to be. What Strath presents them with is this apocalyptic vision of unsurvivable thermonuclear warfare and the complete disintegration of the British state and the British way of life in the face of hydrogen bombs. Ah, so he's just an alarmist then. Well, <laughs> many people would argue that uh, Strath actually drastically underestimates because his estimates are based on 10, I think it is, one and a half megaton hydrogen bombs being dropped uh, along the west coast of the United Kingdom and the fallout spreading across the country. Uh, he probably underestimated the number of hydrogen bombs that would hit Britain. In fact, he definitely did underestimate the number of hydrogen bombs that would hit Britain in the event of a nuclear war. Yeah, I mean, the Strath Report, is that not one of the major sources that leads to... I mean, that, that is used... There's a film made in the 1960s, if I'm aware, that the British government actually stops from airing. Well, I, mean, I mean, this may be us getting a wee bit ahead of time. Yeah, well... I mean, but it relates to this because, uh, I mean, Jeff Hughes, the historian, makes a really good point that the most of the alarm in government when the Strath Report was handed to them is not because of, like, this terrifying, appalling picture of what the future might possibly be, but because of the likely effect of such knowledge on the general public because Britain relies on public support, or at least public acquiescence, to the idea of atomic nuclear deterrence has been, you know, in facing down the Soviets. But because of Castle Bravo, there's a rising sentiment against nuclear tests. We're also seeing the very, very early days of mass anti-nuclear movements. It's not until you get to the late 50s we really see things like, you know, CND, Campaign for Nuclear yeah. Disarmament, yeah. everything. But the government is terrified of this threat to, like, the cornerstone of their foreign and defence policy. They cannot let this information about how apocalyptically awful this is. Strath essentially says that Britain will cease to exist in this modern era of hydrogen bomb warfare and he actually advocates a campaign of public education and also a complete 
reorganisation of British society, the British economy, onto almost a permanent war footing in order to have any chance of surviving and having some kind of form of society after a hydrogen bomb war. So really what it comes down, it comes down to is a question of control of information about the H-bomb. And this has now become central to UK government thinking about the hydrogen bomb. How much can the public know? And the answer is, we don't want them to know anything. So, uh, just purely of interest, you know, being a, a native Glaswegian and with a, a, the, the nuclear... Somebody that... I forget the, forget the name of the base. What is Faslane. Faslane, thank you. Uh, just 20 miles outside of Glasgow. I mean, is that... Did Britain become a hydrogen? Uh, did it get the hydrogen bomb? Is yes. That, is that... Will, that have, will there be hydrogen missiles... Stored in the Clyde. Uh, well, yes. I mean, even up to today, uh, if you go over the hill behind Faslane, uh, the submarines are based at Faslane. The actual nuclear weapons are based at RNAD Coolport. That was the name I was looking Royal Naval yeah. Armaments yeah. Depot. And that's where Britain's H-bombs are stored. And, I mean, that was a grade one target in the Cold War. But Britain doesn't have a submarine deterrent force until the late 60s into the early 70s, when it gets the Polaris system from the United States. So Britain never really has a genuine deterrent, and I'm always wary of using that word, until the late 1960s, early 70s. Yeah, I mean, and just to give you one other effect of uh, Britain becoming a naval power, that I had family that live in, uh, they used to live in Dunoon, which is, uh, you know, just beside, just near Coalport and uh, Faslane. And when they came in, and it was, it was always told to me, like as a kind of anecdote, that you know when the Americans came in with this, all of a sudden there were a huge amount of divorces and mm. <laughs> a lot of well, remarriages that, and, and babies out of wedlock well, appearing from the, places. So there, that's new. That, there was the American uh, submarine base at Loch Long as well. So there was the yeah. Royal Navy base at uh, Faz Lane, there was the American submarine base in Loch Long uh, so, during the Cold War. So there are American listeners. They're, they're, there's what the, the true effect of uh, you know the spreading of the, nuclear There's a spe <laughs> special relationship with, <laughs> yeah, with Dunoon. But I mean, so the, I mean, the interesting thing is, you, you talked about you know, the 1960s, and what this does is, it's, this is a glib encapsulation of it, but the Stratoport is ground zero of the big lie of Cold War civil defence because governments in America and Britain portray nuclear war as survivable and if Strath says anything nuclear war is not survivable and in the era of fallout of like mass radiation poisoning across the land of the brutal effects of the actual hydrogen bomb its explosion and the lingering effects this is a new thing the one thing that fallout brings in is that the effects of hydrogen bombs are not simply they go off, there's a massive explosion, everyone dies. They go off, there's a massive explosion, everyone dies, fallout is thrown into the air, falls down in the days and months afterwards, and everyone left dies as well. And it's the lingering effects uh, of the hydrogen bomb. But the Strath Report is truly apocalyptic in its vision of what's going to happen in the event of even a limited hydrogen bomb exchange. Uh, so when you get to the 1960s, you have the famous case of Peter Watkins' brilliant short film, The War Game. But let's not get into that today, because I think I think you've given us a great flavour at the start of a kind of like of the, the, this what's happening in terms of nuclear warfare 
and I would quite like to do a follow-up episode at some point and there's, there's certainly a couple of issues that we've talked about over the years that I'd love to pick your brain on more so that listeners can hear about it um, so th- thanks a lot Malcolm I mean next time we'll speak to you again we'll be in the, the new year listener uh, and when we'll be looking at uh, one of American history's more most colourful and cuddly characters uh, President Teddy Roosevelt uh, Malcolm do you have any last words you would like? Uh, well, I'm very excited to be talking about TR. He's a intensely complicated, uh, conflicted figure. A very, you're right. He's a very colourful character. Some, in some ways, quite an attractive character. In some ways, quite a repellent character. Yes. Uh, yes. He's so, all things to all people, very much. So. Well, all things to all men. I think is an entirely sexist but appropriate term to use given TR's, you know advocacy of a very masculine way of thinking, a very masculine foreign policy, a very masculine way of life. Although he does he, he does come out for women's suffrage in nineteen fourteen, but or nineteen twelve maybe. But anyway, that's for the next one. That's for the next one. So uh, for those of you that listened to the last what last couple of podcasts, please get in touch with us on Twitter, either at AH2 Podcast. If you have any questions you want to ask about Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, we'll we'll you know try and incorporate them in the episode. And if you have any questions or comments on what you've heard the last couple of episodes as well. So thanks a lot for listening. We hope you have a lovely holiday season. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me as well. Cheerio. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.